Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, help us now as we open Your Word. What we've not seen before, we pray that You would show us what we have not been and are not, that You would make us. What we do not have, because we've been negligent in looking to You, we pray that You would give us this morning by a fresh glimpse of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All for His namesake and His glory we pray. Amen. Let's begin reading in John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and there they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. It's often been said that it's not what you know, it's who you know. That ultimately matters. And as John continues to record the early days of Jesus' ministry, one thing becomes strikingly clear. That it has never been more important than who you know when it comes to Jesus. It's not what you know, it is who you know. This section of John's Gospel opens with great flair and exclamatory introductions by the Baptist who once again calls us to behold (coughs) this morning the Lamb of God and to know the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Many people knew their Old Testaments. Many people knew John the Baptist. But what really matters here in this text this morning is that they know the Messiah. It's not enough simply to know what what the Old Testament taught. It's not enough to simply know the ministry of John the Baptist. They need to know Jesus. And so we find this call of Christ here in this brief account that demonstrates the importance of knowing Him. Here in this passage this morning, we find several traits that are related to the call of Christ that I want you to see with me this morning. And when we see Jesus, when we behold Him as the Baptist commands us to do, behold the Lamb of God, these traits will be found in us too. Just as they are in Andrew, just as they are in Peter and Philip and Nathaniel to come. And so we want to see those traits this morning and We'll begin with looking, first of all, at the trait of expectant obedience. (coughs) Excuse me, the trait of expectant obedience. 
I want you to notice that this text almost begins to sound somewhat (coughs) redundant as it repeats itself on the next day and the next day. And these time markers become increasingly important as we see the development of the story. (coughs) Quickly on the heels of the preceding day, John is again standing with two of his disciples. He himself has been a witness to the details of the Messiah. He is an eyewitness. <clears throat> and he speaks of things that only an eyewitness could know. And so as John opens this next day, he is giving us accounts that come from a man who was there. He, he knew what was going on. He wasn't getting it from second-hand sources. John is there. He records details such as time, such as the sun rising, all of those things, and it heightens our expectation as we come to the text this morning. One thing we learn as we look at this is what was central the day before is central still, and it is the arrival on the scene of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we have John standing there with two of his disciples, men who had followed him, men who had come to be influenced by his ministry. And they're standing there with John as John, once again, on a new day, yet with the same theme, sees the Lamb of God. And we know that one of those two disciples is Andrew. And probably John himself, the writer of this gospel, who is quick not to name himself, being a humble man. He doesn't name himself as the other disciple. But we know for sure Andrew is there. And they're standing and they're looking along with John the Baptist at Jesus. They are gazing upon him. As John the Baptist sees Jesus, he does what anybody would do who has seen the Messiah. And that is to begin to direct other people to look at him the way they do or he does. The verb here for beholding and looking at Jesus is one of intense gaze. It's a focused attention, Murray Harris says. They're looking nowhere else and for no one else. They're focused on Jesus in a singular and powerful way. As it's been said before, the truth for John the Baptist at times would almost be too great. He, he would look at Jesus and he would behold Jesus. And like we've all said at one point in our life or another, some things are too good to be true. And John the Baptist, through this intense gaze, would question whether or not he was seeing things rightly. Are you the Messiah? As we talked about last week. So in awe of who Jesus was, yet tinged with shock at his glory and his majesty at what he had come to do. John finally concludes, this really is him. Imagine with me for a moment trying to comprehend all that happened in that day. Or in those days, we we have the the very uh, emphasis on the days here. 
on this day this happened, and on the next day this happened, and on the next day after this, this happened. Imagine being the one who is there and seeing day after day the Messiah walk through your village or walk past you, and you're trying to get your mind around the the fact that this is the man who created time. Who is outside of time. This is the man who has fulfilled all the promises and the prophecies of the prophets before him. This is the man that Israel has been waiting for from Abraham to this day. This is him. The one who carries all of the divine titles and the divine names given throughout the Old Testament. This is him. Throughout Scripture, 700 plus divine names and titles given to God. And here is God in the flesh, the one who carries them all. Imagine being there on that day. Imagine looking at Jesus and realizing this is the judge of all the earth. This is the man to whom every human being will give an account. This is the man that if were he not to exist, nothing would exist. Imagine seeing him and trying to wrap your mind around that kind of awe. This is him. It really is. And yet, He has human flesh and blood. He's man as we are. Truly man. And He's not come to destroy as He has the power to do. As He did in the Old Testament. He's come to save. What a shock. What a shock this was for the Baptists, for those other men who saw Jesus that day. And so John cries out again, Behold, the Lamb of God. Brief, pointed, but it's almost as if he gets tongue-tied every time he sees Jesus. That's all he can say. Behold, the Lamb of God. I can't find any words further to say. I'm speechless. How would you have said all that needs to be said If Jesus were to come on the scene, how would you have introduced him to your friends and followers? It's too too great to comprehend. But what matters is that they see and they comprehend. They know this man, this Jesus. They need to know who it is that they're seeing and they need to have a proper response. And so John, again, issues a an exclamatory sermon that everyone needs to hear. (coughs) All must see and respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Baptist leaves us. (coughs) I suppose. (coughs) But the Baptist leaves us then in a position, doesn't he? That we can identify with. Speechless, privileged, yet terrified. And so we need, like the disciples of John the Baptist, to grasp what he was calling them to grasp this morning. We don't need to just grasp the Messiah, the Lamb of God, in terms of identification. 
We need to grasp Him like the disciples did here on this day in terms of imitation. We need to imitate Him and we need to imitate them and their response as they hear that short, simple message, Behold, the Lamb of God. They, they heard John the Baptist speak and they heard John the Baptist proclaim the presence of Jesus as he walks by. And notice what they do. Notice the text that as John issues his declaration, verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. We need to imitate their response. They immediately follow. A five-word sermon changes the entire course of history. For these two men and for many others. In fact, I think we can well say that we're sitting here today because of that five-word sermon. When Jesus walks by and John says to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God, and they immediately turn and follow Him. Remember, these are the men who took the gospel of Jesus to the entire world, turned it upside down, and handed it down to us. So, their following is not as abstract as we might think it is. It literally has changed us and changed the world. These men just immediately see Jesus and they know what they have to do. They don't have to be told. They don't have to be asked. They just know if the Messiah is here, part of beholding Him is to follow Him. And so they do. It's probable that there had been discussion since the previous day's events when they had been with John and heard John's proclamation on the day previous. It's certain that these men, Andrew and later Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, were Jewish men who knew their Old Testament. And so there's not a great deal of surprise then that they would do what is proper, and yet it is still amazing. They followed Jesus with expectant obedience. And yet, none of us follows naturally, do we? We don't just wake up one day as sinners and say, I think I'll follow Jesus today. To to follow Jesus is a supernatural act wherein we are drawn by God to His Son through the words that point to His Son. And that is exactly what has happened here. Jesus will demonstrate that, I think, further in Nathaniel's life next week. But God has sovereignly drawn each one of us to Himself through that singular message, Behold the Lamb of God. Here He is. The word proclaimed by the Baptist powerfully, accurately, sufficiently. And the response to that word revealing Christ is God's means of supernatural power to create disciples. And so the disciples are created. They follow Jesus. Now some have debated what, what do they mean by following because the word can be used for, to mean different things. Uh, was it simply that they tagged along to see where Jesus would take them? A temporal joyride out of curiosity, if you will, to see if he might satisfy their religious notions or longings and cravings to know something deeper? 
that would be really hard to imagine for a disciple of John the Baptist. Uh, Let's just put it this way, can we? John the Baptist was no felt-needs preacher. John the Baptist wasn't interested in tickling ears. That's why he lost his head. John the Baptist was concerned with one thing, calling people to repentance and following the Messiah. He was a straightforward, plain-spoken preacher. His disciples were not people who uh, followed him when it was convenient. The followers of John the Baptist knew that this was deadly serious. And so it would be hard to imagine that John the Baptist followers would have been prepared in such a superficial way that their following meant nothing meaningful other than to satisfy curiosity. They had been well prepared and well taught through the seriousness of the Baptist's own ministry. These men were nothing if not well prepared to follow Jesus when He came. Let me put it in modern terms. They'd not been entertained with religious notions like too much of modern evangelicalism of a user-friendly Jesus who was there to help them have fun. These were men prepared for eternity. They had not lost their appetite uh, for that which was real in favor of that sugary substitute that does nothing but ultimately kill. They were ready for Meeting Jesus. The soil had been tilled and fertilized and prepared and planted by the Baptist. And they knew what to expect. When the Messiah came, they knew what to do. They did not have to be told or invited because of the influence of John the Baptist's ministry. They were well prepared. It's a good lesson for us today that what we read and partake of and imbibe and put into our minds and our lives needs to be that which prepares us seriously for seriously following the Messiah. Not things that just are fun or appealing to our flesh. Put the right things in and you'll get the right things out. And so we find that with the Baptists, they follow with expectant obedience. And so it's not a trivial type of following, a casual following. It is intentional. It is serious. It is committed. Second, we could look at their following Jesus as an abandonment of the life they had known. To pursue God in the life that He had created for them and for His kingdom purposes. And that is, after all, isn't it, where these men land. In this second vein of of following. This appears to be true, especially with Andrew's response. You see, Andrew is not only willing to stake his life on following Jesus, he's willing to stake his brother's life on it too. Now, if you love somebody, if you care about somebody, you don't invite them to do things that are harmful to them, do you? You don't invite them to believe things or to do things that could be detrimental to them. But but Andrew is so committed, 
He is so believing that Jesus is who the Baptist had prepared them for that he is willing to go get his own brother and bring him into the fray as well. Most family members would never call their loved ones to something that could potentially embarrass them or mislead them. We only give truth to those we love. And so when we consider the call of the disciples here and in the other Gospels, it appears that this is indeed a forsaking of all of their life as they had known it in order to follow Jesus fully and to to find fulfillment in Him and in Him alone. Did they understand everything about the Messiah at this point? No. Were they always perfect in their faith? No. Is perfect knowledge and understanding required by Jesus from anyone in order to follow Him? No. None of us have perfect faith. None of us have perfect understanding. But what they did know coupled with what they heard and saw from John the Baptist and from Jesus Himself, was enough for them to follow. And so they did. They followed the Messiah. My question for you this morning is, have you? Have you followed the Messiah with expectant obedience as these disciples did? Are are you believing Jesus to be who the Scriptures declare Him to be? And are you willing to follow and to leave anything and everything behind? If not, why not? We know more than they did. We live on this side of the resurrection and this side of the ascension. We have the blessing of so much more than they had. Even though they saw Him in the flesh face to face, we have the revelation of God's written and completed Word. Why aren't you following Jesus? What's stopping you from believing Jesus? Is it pride? Is it idolatry? Is it rebellion? Or perhaps it's timidity. Maybe it's that we think we surely are unable to follow Jesus because I don't know enough or or it's not clear enough. Those are no good reason, just as the others are not a good reason. Because the Scripture reveals that in Christ there is hope, and hope is the next trait exhibited by these disciples. As they obediently follow, notice the next trait is one of examining confirmation. That They follow Jesus, verse 37, and in verse 38... Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi. That that clues us in. They're wanting to be taught. They they view him as one who can explain because Rabbi means teacher. And they ask him the question, Where are you staying exactly? Uh, You see, what they understood was uh, when the first time they see Jesus and they encounter Jesus, They understand one thing, that it is the voice of God piercing their world. They know something different has come. Someone different has come. This is not just John the Baptist. Some voice, some 
powerful voice has penetrated their world. And I want you to notice Jesus' response to them. As they begin to follow, Jesus doesn't chide them for what they don't know. Jesus invites them to ask what they don't know. What is it you seek, he says. He doesn't beat them over the head with, you should know better, you should know this, you should know that. Jesus says, what do you seek? What would you like to know? And they come with expectant hope. They come excited to examine him and to ask him questions. So much so that they understand this, standing on the side of the road, probably not a good enough venue to ask all the questions they have to ask. It's going to take a while. We're going to need all night. And so Jesus invites them because it's what we would say is 4 p.m. in the afternoon, the 10th hour. Measuring from 6 a.m. as the Jewish clock would have done. It's about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, do you have enough time? Where are you staying? We'll need to go to wherever it is you're staying in order to ask what we really need to ask. Remember, Jesus doesn't ask because He needs information. He asks in order to give confirmation, to give them the opportunity to confirm what it is they seek and to confirm what it is they already think. Luke chapter 9, verse 47, we read this, Jesus knowing what they were thinking in their heart. So don't, don't be under the illusion that Jesus somehow needed or lacked information. He knew exactly what is transpiring in their hearts and in their minds. We know what it is, don't we? To ask in a moment of irritation or to respond in a moment of irritation to someone's question and we... What do you want? What do you want? Why are you bothering me? What? That's not Jesus' response. Jesus, in a moment of redemptive purpose, says, What is it you seek, Andrew? What, what is it you seek, John? What would you like to know? He, he's not come to condemn. He's come to save. He's come to help. He's come to heal. These men, so well schooled in in the school of John the Baptist, prepared for repentance and faith in the Messiah, suddenly meet Jesus. And they begin to question. They begin to want to know more about Jesus and about what He had come to do. What does Jesus do? He leads them down the path of illumination for the purpose of salvation. Come to the house where I'm staying tonight. Come and you will see, he says. And their response is not one of immediate content. They didn't get all the answers right then. Rather, they request a deeper conversation. And I want you to notice two things about this exchange that they have with Jesus here in the middle of this passage. Number one, it's steeped in reverence. Notice how they approach him, Rabbi. That was a very esteemed title in their day. He, he is a teacher. The term Rabbi didn't come to mean teacher until later on 
uh, in Jesus' time previous to that in the Old Testament to refer to someone as rabbi was to refer to them as a leader, one of highest rank or importance. And so they were referring to him, no doubt, not only as a teacher, but as one who was highly esteemed. When we come to Jesus, we ought to come in the same way, to come reverently and humbly before one who, who knows all things, one who is truth himself, one who leads and guides into all truth. One who is highly esteemed in the highest position and the highest place. Is that how we approach Jesus? In John chapter 6, verse 68, just coming up in a few weeks, Peter issues what I think is one of the sweetest, most tender responses to Jesus. Simon Peter answered him and says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who else can answer like you do, Lord Jesus? Who else has these kind of answers? You have the keys. You have the words of eternal life. Teach us, Lord. And that appears to be the heart of of Andrew here. And John, as they seek to follow Jesus, they are steeped not only in in reverence, but they're, they're steeped in an understanding in the depth of who Jesus is. He's the well of wisdom that cannot be casually drawn from. Can I put that in modern terminology for you this morning? Jesus is not someone who can simply be known by an hour in church on Sunday morning. We come to Jjesus so casually that He's so shallow that we can get all we need of Jesus in, you know, 50 minutes of sermon on Sunday morning. That is absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. We are talking about the eternal mind of God. And these disciples realize that. We can't just get Him ever once in a while, you know, for 50 minutes on Sunday, maybe a podcast or two throughout the week, and that's all there is, and we've got Jesus, we've got Him figured out. No. It is a lifetime of drawing from that well. A a commitment that, that, that they know, as committed as they will be, can never be fully satisfied. Who can get to the bottom of who God is? Brothers and sisters, I've got news for you. If you think that when you reach heaven, you're going to know everything there is to know about God and that heaven from that point on becomes a little tedious and mundane, you've got another thing coming. We will never tire or be able to fully plumb the depths of the greatness of our God. Ever. And these disciples realize that. That's why they're requesting a longer audience. It's a full commitment, a total commitment of life and time to know Him as He should be fully known. The living Word invites them, come and you will see. Not take a bite and see how you like it, and that will be enough. No, come as in permanently come. Fully come, and you'll see who I am. It's one of the travesties of modern evangelicalism is soundbite Christianity. One-page devotionals. And if you do a one-page devotional, 
I'm not knocking that per se. But there's so much more. So much more in the Word of God. In walking with God, meditating on who He is. Is five minutes in the morning really enough? Is 15 minutes really enough? Is one hour really enough? Martin Luther was once asked what, how it was that, that he could spend three to four hours every morning in prayer. Seeing that he had so much to do and so much to accomplish. And they said, how, one of his students asked him, how can you afford to pray for three or four hours every morning? He said, I am too busy not to. I am too overwhelmed not to spend time with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords communing with God in prayer. What does our desire for Jesus say in terms of how much time we spend getting to know Him? Are we content with mainstream American evangelical Christianity? It's just a little here and a little there and we're fine. Or like these disciples, do we hunger? Do we find when we've been in the Word, when we've been in study, we look at our watch and we say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that much time went by. I just need another, you know, 30 minutes. I don't know what else was on their calendar that day. But whatever it was, they removed it in order to spend time with Jesus. They realized it wasn't what they had known in the past, but who they knew in the present that really mattered. And so they were willing to just throw everything to the wind and go spend the night questioning Jesus. The exact details of that evening are not revealed in Scripture. But we know that they were spent in the presence of God Himself. And the results that came as a, as a follow-up to that night certainly prove what must have been talked about. Again, it didn't make perfect men immediately. They didn't go out and have perfect, unwavering faith. They didn't go out and never sin again. That's not it at all. But they did go out from there changed. Following Jesus more fully and completely than they ever had. And I guess that's the lesson for us, isn't it? That when you're filled with the truth of who Jesus is, you have no filter to stop you from saying what you've learned. These men couldn't keep silent any longer. As they grew and they knew more about Jesus and more about Jesus, they just couldn't be silent. When you get to the book of Acts, you find the collection of sermons. They could not shut their mouths even in the face of death and persecution, and prison, even that couldn't stop them. They just were so moved by knowing Christ. I want you to notice the last trait this morning, particularly of Andrew, and that is the trait of excited introduction. Expectant obedience, examining confirmation, and excited introduction. Andrew is the first disciple called by Jesus. He's the first one that we know definitively who he was. But there are several remarkable things about Andrew that I want to be remarkable in my life and when I die, maybe even put on my headstone. 
Here lies a man who introduced others to Jesus. What a great way to be known. The, the, most, un, the most unremarkable disciple does the most remarkable thing, and that is this, that every time we find him in Scripture, he's bringing someone to meet Jesus. Not in a cold, guilty way that, oh, I have to go evangelize somebody. Where are those notes from evangelism class? Step one, two, three, da-da-da, wrote. No, Andrew's just excited. He can't wait to tell somebody about Jesus. He can't wait to bring somebody to meet the Savior. He is always looking to do that. Now, Andrew does not rise to great prominence within the disciples. Within the twelve that Jesus chooses, Andrew is one of those who is often in the background even though he has perhaps one of the most powerful roles among any of the disciples. What is that role? Bringing people to Jesus. He himself seeks no power, apparently. And that's what makes him remarkable for our study. And here's what we learn about this eager disciple. He was a man of humility. I want you to notice how he's introduced. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Andrew. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We haven't even met Peter yet, and yet here's Andrew getting introduced as, oh, that's Peter's brother. You know, some of you may have had siblings or a parent, and and you're known because you're the sibling or you're the son or the daughter, right? And, 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 And you find yourself going, I just want to be my own person. I just want to be known for me. And yet here's Andrew. And we haven't even, Simon Peter hasn't even come on the scene yet. And poor Andrew is getting tagged with his brother's identity. From the before the get-go. But doesn't bother Andrew. Some might be tempted to say, well, I'm not going to tell Peter. I, I, I want this to be my thing. I don't want Peter joining in. Because you know what happens when Peter gets involved? Everybody else gets uninvolved. Peter overshadows everybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save this little niche. I'm not going to tell Peter. I'm going to keep Jesus for myself. But Andrew doesn't do that. The first thing Andrew does is run and go get Simon Peter. And says, Peter, you got to come here. Can you imagine what it was like growing up with Peter? Don't you know that those parents... Broke up more than one or two fights in that house. Starts with Peter's mouth. Ends with others' fists. I mean, the, these were... I mean, we know what Peter's like, right? When Peter gets... gets, he, You know, he didn't. thankfully he didn't have guns. He, he couldn't have had an itchy trigger finger, but he had an itchy sword finger. And he was more than willing to take a swipe at somebody's neck. Thankfully, he was a feckless sword fighter and got the ear. But Peter's a brawler. Peter's a, a loudmouth. Peter's the flashy guy. Peter's the one up front. And Andrew says, "Man, well, maybe, maybe Andrew went and got Peter because he knew Peter really needed Jesus. And he goes and he gets his brother and he brings him. But here's Andrew willing to live in the shadows of his older brother. I guess older. 
This is a foretaste of Andrew's life. He immediately is overshadowed by Peter. He will continue to be overshadowed by Peter as well as other disciples. Who, by the way, was probably, Andrew was probably a longtime friend of James and John. The disciple unnamed here in this text because they grow up in the same small fishing community and no doubt all the fishermen knew each other. They cleaned their nets together. They docked their boats together. They knew one another. And yet it never seems to bother Andrew. He's always content to play a role in the background. And yet he was a man with great zeal. That's the second thing we find about Andrew. He is a man with great zeal. He just wanted to bring people to Jesus. What if we lived that kind of life? What if we were content and humble enough we didn't really care much that we were heard of? What we were really concerned about was spending time with Jesus to the point that we knew Him so well that we couldn't help but introduce others to Him. Does Jesus mean that much to us? Do we bring people to Jesus? Do we bring them to the Messiah? Do we bring them? And as they begin to hear Jesus speak, we just sort of fade into the background. Mission accomplished. My work here is done. It was pure joy to Andrew to do this. I want you to notice something else about Andrew. Notice what the text says. Verse 42. He didn't just tell Peter, he brought Peter. No, we don't know if Peter was unwilling. (laughs) It says that, that he went and he first finds his own brother and he tells him the next verse he's bringing him. We don't know if Peter said, I'm not going. You're crazy. I've seen too many of those men claiming to be Messiah come through town. I'm not going to another camp meeting. With the next Messiah, Andrew, go back to bed. Go take your meds. Do something, but get out of my way. Next thing we know, Andrew tells, now Andrew's bringing. Peter didn't have much of a choice. Maybe Peter didn't want to go. Maybe it's just another phase for his pesky brother. Who knows? But in the end, Peter is brought by Andrew to Jesus. You know, sometimes people came, as in the case of John chapter 12, verse 21. You remember, they came to Philip and asked Philip, hey, could you introduce us to Jesus? Andrew never had that problem. Andrew didn't give him a choice. He said, before you even know where you're going, you're going to meet Jesus. Another event that occurs just a few chapters from now in John chapter 6. Remember the scenario, there's a crisis that has arisen. There are at least 5,000 people who had been listening to Jesus preach who got really hungry. And I say at least 5,000 because in Jewish times it was common to count only the men present. And so if going by normal Jewish accounting, that would be 5,000 men. If each one of them had a wife and a couple of kids, you can see how quickly that number escalates from 5,000 to 20,000. 
It's not out of the question. But even at that, feeding 5,000 people is a lot, especially in a day when there's no drive through no H-E-B, no place you can just run down to real quick, grab some food and feed these people. They didn't have, you know, PETA delivery services. And so here we are, we're, we're in a crisis, as it were, of how we're going to feed these people and the disciples are questioning, well, how much money do you have? How much money do you have? What are we going to do? And it's getting late. And who comes out of the background other than Andrew, the disciple? He says, Jesus, won't you meet this little boy? And lad, I want you to meet Jesus. Jesus, he's got some loaves and some fishes here. And then Andrew just steps back. I think Andrew knew what was going to happen. I think Andrew anticipates that he'd seen enough of Jesus already. He'd seen water become wine. He'd seen people healed. He'd seen things that only God could do. You can, I wish I knew, and maybe someday I'll ask him, Andrew, what was going through your mind? But his actions are consistent. He's bringing someone to Jesus. And then he fades into the background. All because of a five-word sermon. Behold the Lamb of God. Good enough for me. I'm going to follow. And not only am I going to follow, I'm going to bring everybody else I can to follow Him to. I wonder if Andrew was an emotional guy that maybe got a lump in his throat each time someone met Jesus. As he saw others fall at his feet and worship him. Maybe there ought to be a little corner in heaven someday called Andrew's area. Kind of like in some of the big arenas, you know, named after famous people where reunions are held for all those who came to meet Jesus because of Andrew's ministry. Wouldn't it be interesting to know how many of us have come to know Christ somehow, some way, spiritually? Through Andrew's family tree. We, we got Ancestry.com to help us figure out our physical DNA. But you know, we all have a spiritual DNA too. Going all the way back to Jesus and all the way back to the disciples who took his message, who took the hope of the gospel and turned the world upside down with it. There were first Christians somewhere. Somebody shared the gospel with you. Well, where'd they get it? Somebody shared it with them. Somebody gave then that person. It goes on. But I wonder how many of us could say, maybe we even came from Andrew's spiritual lineage. Certainly, that first introduction, though, of his older brother Peter had to make him chuckle. Because Jesus, lastly, Shows us the trait of evident change. <clears throat> Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And then we don't hear any more about Andrew. Andrew's off the scene now. Just how typical of Andrew. And Jesus looks at Peter and says to him, verse 42, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. 
Andrew gives Jesus what might be his hardest case first, you know? I'm going to bring him to Peter first, and if he can change Peter, I'll bring him other people, because if he can change Peter, he can change anybody. So he brings Peter to Jesus, and I'm just speculating, right? Just wish I was there. But he brings Peter to Jesus, and Peter faces Jesus. And there's no words exchanged. Peter doesn't say anything to Jesus like Andrew had. It's almost as if Andrew brings Peter in, stands him in front of Jesus, and just waits for the fireworks. Just waits to see what's going to happen. And boy, does it happen. And maybe this is what fuels in part Andrew's evangelistic fervor from then on. Like a little child who gets a reaction, you know? Gets a reaction out of you, whether it's laughing or other things. And they just keep doing it. We all know what that's like, right? And once they see there's a reaction, and once they see something happen, they're just going to keep laying it on. Here's Andrew. He sees what Jesus does with Peter. He says, i got to see that again. Let's watch Jesus do that again. And so maybe that's what fuels his lifetime. Of It's just the sheer ecstasy of seeing Jesus change lives every single time. Here's Peter now standing before Jesus and several things become clear. Number one, Jesus possesses all power. Jesus possesses all authority. How do we know that? Jesus changes Peter's name. Names back then mean more than names do now. You can't just change your name. Even in our culture today, you've got to go through steps, right? You've got to hire an attorney. You've got to go before a judge. You've got to deal with a county clerk. You've got to do all kinds of things to change your name. You don't have the authority just to say, you know, I'm going to change uh, my name. I'm going to change my identity. You can't just do that. You couldn't just do that in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're Simon. I'm changing your name to Peter. Whoa, you're not his dad. You can't just take away the name his mom and dad gave him. They have the authority to name their child in Jewish culture. Jesus says, oh, but I do. I possess all power in heaven and in earth, and I'm going to change Peter's name because if you thought that was something, you ought to see the power demonstrated when I change Peter's character. Because Simon, like Abram in the Old Testament, was anything but a steady and faithful man. We remember when we met Abram, right? We meet him. He's called by God in Genesis chapter 12 for those of you that are coming on Sunday morning to Sunday school. And wow, we expect big things. Next chapter, what's Abraham doing? Telling his wife, hey, tell him you're my sister. I don't want to get hurt. Boy, talk about unsteady. Talk about unreliable. Talk about undependable. Well, that's Simon too. But Jesus says, I'm changing your name, Simon. I'm going to reverse that 180 degrees because rather than be the emotional, hothead, undependable, unstable guy who, by the way, will end up even denying me. 
I'm going to change your name to Peter, Petros, Rock. So much so that you are the very opposite of what you are when I found you. That is what I'm going to make you. Jesus, as it were, assesses Peter's humanity and says, No more, Peter. I'm going to change you to a rock. What authority! What power, not just to change his name, but to change the very core of who Peter is. It didn't happen instantly, it didn't happen immediately, but eventually it did happen. Through much toil and sorrow and tears and repentance and grief, Peter becomes the man that Jesus changed him to be. Jesus possesses all power, he possesses all authority. Peter no longer belongs to his parents and Peter no longer belongs to himself. Peter is the property of Jesus called by him with a unique name that only Jesus could give him. Now Matthew 4 records the events of a time when their following Jesus would become permanent. This is kind of a temporary call. He calls him... if I can use a military analogy, he calls them into boot camp here. After boot camp, they get to go home for a period of leave. And then he comes walking on the seashore in Matthew chapter 4. And he says, okay, guys, it's time. Leave is over. Follow me. We're, it's permanent now. And that's the point in which they ship out, if you will, to turn the world upside down. All by the authority of Christ. All by the authority of the Lamb of God. His authority in their life is now total. And they gladly, willingly, happily, joyfully follow Jesus. Obedience. Questioning. Introduction. Change. These are all traits that are true of Jesus' disciples from the first to the last. From the greatest to the least, it's true of all of us. Again, it doesn't happen quickly. It's not overnight. So don't be discouraged if you say, man, you know, I just get so frustrated. and I begin to doubt myself because, you know, it just happens so slow and it just seems so inconsistent. Let me tell you what the disciples learned. It's not them, it's Him. And your your salvation and your assurance don't rest on you and how perfect your responses to Jesus are. The assurance of your salvation rests on Jesus. And the power He demonstrates in your life. Ours is simply to believe and to follow. And to grow as we follow. These are the traits of true disciples. Mind you, they knew a lot of facts. But it was what they didn't know that changed them. And what they didn't know was the Messiah. He was the X factor that changed everything. It is who that changed them, not what. It's not what you know. It's who you know.